We are going to be in John chapter 3. Uh, before we look at our text, John chapter 3, if you've already turned there, keep your finger on it and then flip over to Ezekiel chapter 36 because it's where we're going to start. If I could mention about hope, when I'm listening to Charlie this morning, we didn't, of course, compare notes. And I didn't know if he was going to try and do something that would add on a little bit to what the conference had been about. And hopefully you were able here to, to uh, that you were here and able to see the sessions. But the idea of a continuation of the, even the theme of the conference, this blessed hope, there's an expectation in us, or at least there should be in the believer. And so it is not something that is new to the uh, New Testament. It is something that is also in the old, and that really plays into what we see in John chapter 3. But again, a hopefulness in the believer, it's a, it's a weird thing when you maybe approach and speak with other people that profess to be Christians but don't have a hope in the imminent return of Jesus. There's not that hopefulness that today could be the day. And so as Charlie was talking about hopefulness and anticipation and expectation, uh, as I try to describe it when I'm talking about it, when I think of hope, I think of being a little kid. And of course, if you were the type that your folks said, hey, uh, make out your Christmas list, we were pretty prolific at Christmas lists, weren't we? Uh, you'd have to be a Vanderbilt to afford everything that we would put on the, on the paper. Were you like me, or am I the only person? The rest of you are lying if you didn't put up your hand. So you're just not telling the truth. So anyway, you would know what you asked for. And so you would hope that when you woke up in the morning, you saw these, this just mountain of stuff. You knew that it was all for you. And you were really broken when you found out that it wasn't because you realized that the math just wasn't going to work out. So there were things on your paper that you didn't get. And so as you wrap things, unwrap things, you would get to the point where you thought, you know, I, there are still these things that are not, I have not yet opened, and there are not enough presents to get all of them. And so the hopefulness is that you get all the stuff that you want, and the other stuff, well, okay. So again, the hopefulness is based upon, uh, I sure hope I get it. The blessed hope that we talk about is more of an event, and it's not a day. And this is the problem that we ran into, I believe, during the 80s when we didn't get what we were expecting, and that was the return of Jesus. And the book of Proverbs tells us that hope deferred makes the heart weary. And I've seen a number of, of brothers and sisters that have said, well, we thought the Lord was coming back in the 80s. He didn't. We must, I, I guess we're just going to have to be around for a while. And they lost that zeal. They lost that hopefulness, and they've lost that expectation. And that has such a... Such a uh, a, a souring way of, of changing our heart about expectation. So for us to be able to speak about these things, again, we were talking about them when I got saved some 30 years ago. I'm more excited about it today than I've ever been because I'm waiting to be done with this. I look at the world around me and it becomes a less hospitable place by the day. This world does not like us. I don't expect it to, but the world doesn't even try to make any pretense anymore. And so I'm, I'm fine with the idea of going to see the Lord. I'm, I'm glad if that's today. Well, this idea of expectation, we see it between this discussion that, that, Nia, or that uh, Nicodemus and Habakkuk, uh, same thing, that expectation, coming before the Lord and, and seeking something and being told that down the road. And so there is this expectation, just hang tight and wait. And so also with, uh, with Nicodemus, there was an anticipation in him at least of trying to get some kind of information, but his eyes were in the wrong place and he wasn't looking forward to something and here's Jesus right in front of him and he should have known it. And so we get that from John chapter 3. So uh, we'll begin with the promise 
Because for us to have a hope means that there must be already an offer or a promise in place that we can have the hopefulness of as we await that. Can we agree on that? Great. So there is something that we'll get to when we're in chapter 3, but I want to give you the promise, first of all, that Nicodemus should have had. So uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pray that you would lead us and guide us in all truth by your Spirit today. The spirit that you speak about to Nicodemus in chapter 3 is the one that to the believer resides in us and that leads us in all truth as you had promised us also in John's gospel. The spirit that would reside, that would be in us. We thank you that you you have given your spirit that we may know these things, that they're not just words on a page. It's not just literature. These are words of life. And so we thank you that you have not left us without expectation, without hope, and without your word. So we thank you. We give you praise and honor this morning in Jesus' name. In Ezekiel 36, at verse 26, we read this. Actually, let's look at verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols, and I will give you a new heart And I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will put in you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and and, and you will keep my judgments, and you will do them. Now, this is a promise that was put there in Ezekiel's time. And so to any person who would be looking at God's word, they should be from that moment on looking with expectation to when that event would take place. That should always have been upon their minds to think there is going to be a relationship that we will have with the living God through his spirit, but we don't fully understand it now because the spirit could not reside in the heart of sinful man. A sacrifice had to be made. Man need to be made right before God so that God could enter in. That's what the scripture teaches us. But yet here in Ezekiel 36 is a promise. But in order for this promise to come to pass... Even from Ezekiel's time, they're displaced from the land. They're in the Babylonian captivity. God's got to bring them back. And some may have thought that that was being fulfilled as they come back through the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah after Zerubbabel had built what he had built. But they had, they had begun to bring back and, and be brought back into the land. And so they may very well have thought that this is starting to take place. And there should have been then this expectation. We all know the rest of history. It's recorded for us in 70 A.D., that final dispersion of God's people for some 1,900 years takes place as Jerusalem is sacked by the Romans and they're gone. And so this promise is either a failure on God's part or it is something that is put as a down-the-road kind of a thing. And it's helpful for us to look at chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And in order for a promise to be made that God is going to do some kind of restoration, he needs to do a restoration of the people back to the land. And so that's what you get in chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And so here it is, 30 or 2,500 years plus since God made the promise, and we still await the fulfillment of that, but we see it in front of our eyes. As we, as we gather here today, God is regathering his people into the land right here, right now, in preparation for exactly what he promised to Ezekiel. But let's go back now, about 1,900 years and some change, to John chapter 3. And the dialogue that is here. That is between Jesus and Nicodemus. Again, Nicodemus, another man who should have been in a place of expectation, should have been looking, should have been watching, should have been waiting. 
He knows that something's going on, and, and uh, as we, I, I'm sure you probably are the same way, there are times that you want to ask something, or you want to make a statement, or better yet, you do want to ask, maybe straight up, what is this, how is this, why is this, but you don't know how to even begin the whole thing. And so you make more of a statement than you ask a question. And in this case, as Jesus does very often, he goes right to the heart of the matter. It's, I don't care what your, what your statement is, but let's get to why you're here, Nicodemus. So we read in, in John chapter 3, there was a man, a Pharisee, named Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. Not a garden variety Pharisee, as though there would be something like that. I mean, these are the people that were so rigid and so careful about the law and about the implementation of it, and yet he was in a class above. And so a person of great, great prominence and so he comes to Jesus. It tells us this man came to Jesus by night, said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Here's why. No one can do the things and, and the signs that you do unless God is with him. So he makes a statement. Now, of course, in the statement is a question, but it's kind of veiled. But the Lord knows this, of course, so he just goes right past that part of it and gets to the heart of the matter. Tells him something that he's just not prepared to hear, because we see it in verse 3, and most assuredly Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, if Nicodemus were to have said, well, that, I didn't even ask a question, and if I was going to ask a question, that's not the one that I would have asked. And Jesus would have said, but yeah, this is what you need to know. So I want you to understand this, Nicodemus. There's a need for a spiritual rebirth. Now, if Nicodemus was in a place of expectation, he would have said, this sounds a lot like what Ezekiel was talking about. It's also what Jeremiah had spoken of as God was revealing that there would be a day when he would indwell the person. To them, it's a foreign concept. They knew that the Spirit could be upon them, alongside them, you know, doing miraculous things, but the idea of resident... This must be something that we don't fully understand, but God made the promise, nevertheless. So now if Jesus is talking about needing a spiritual rebirth, if Nicodemus was truly in a place of expectation, he would have said, this sounds familiar, tell me more. And he would have been probing to find out what else, what comes next. Instead, he finds himself perplexed because he understands religion. He understands the traditions of men. He understands the traditions of God through the word. He knows all of the ritual and all of the pomp and the circumstance that man had added in. But he had no idea of this spiritual condition that Jesus was referring to. And it was about to become possible in and through the ministry of Jesus. And so he says to him, you must be born again, of course. So Nicodemus hears this at verse 4 and says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? I want to make sure that we're careful to notice this. In John's gospel, there are other things that John records Jesus having said, but this is the first dialogue that he has with anyone, in that there is a back and forth and a discussion that takes place. And so he makes a statement to Nicodemus that Nicodemus has no concept of. Again, he's blinded by his religion. And we still see that today. People that are so blinded by what they think that they already know that they can't even hear of things biblical. And so here, Jesus is going to hold him accountable, but he asks the question. So Jesus says, great, I'm going to speak to you in earthly terms. And he'll end up doing so because it will be a testimony against this man, Nicodemus, 
that he must, you know, come to a different understanding of what he, what he thinks that he knows. Now, Jesus says to him in verse 5, Most assuredly, I say to you, that unless one is born of water and one is born of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. For that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. So he follows up the statement and says, There is a physical birth, and that's undeniable. The fact that Nicodemus could make his way to Jesus is testimony. I mean, nobody's going to debate this. But his lack of understanding about this proves that there is no spiritual rebirth. In fact, if Nicodemus had said from the outset, Oh, this is what Ezekiel was talking about. I've been waiting for you. So born me again. That wouldn't be English. It wouldn't even be Hebrew. But you get the picture, right? Jesus would have had to have said, well, I'm going to need you to hold on for a while because some things are still going to need to take place. And he could have begun to tell him, like he told the disciples, that I will eventually be delivered into the hands of sinful men and I'll be put to death, but I'll raise on the third day. All of that needed to take place before any of these things could take place. Yet Jesus was laying the groundwork for this reality, for this truth. And so he says to Nicodemus, there is a physical birth that everyone participates in, But there is a spiritual rebirth that not everyone does. And even this case here, there's not even the expectation of it. Now, isn't it an amazing thing? Before we were saved, we never would have thought this way. If you're born again in here today, you didn't walk through life just waiting for the promise of the Spirit to be sent that you could be born again. You didn't even speak like that. You didn't even know what it was. That light needed to be flipped on, needed to be switched on. You needed to understand these things in a biblical sense. And then you cry out, Jesus, save me. Cleanse me from my sin. Come into my life and, and remove what I've been. I, I, I entrust my life to you. Born again, he gives you the spirit as the promise by that confession of faith and asking him in. Well, this is all what he's beginning to talk to Nicodemus about. And so he says, but don't marvel at this. Don't marvel that you must be born again. Well, you shouldn't marvel because you should have known. So we see in verse 8, and he explains it this way. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So he says now the second thing that would give him an earthly understanding of what he's talking about. Hey, there's a physical birth and there's a spiritual rebirth. There's your first understanding that you can come to here's another one if you were to go outside and I noticed a little bit earlier as I was looking up yep we got wind today and so you can take a look at the tree you can even tell me the direction of the wind correct by looking at what it's doing to the tree it imparts the direction but if I was to say well would you point out exactly where it came from you would just be able to say somewhere in that direction so where's it going to wind up and when does it end I don't know but it looks like it's going that way and if you guys that play golf you would say oh no no man the wind can be going that way one moment and this way the other, right? So the guys that laugh say, yeah, kind of nervously you laugh. Yeah, I don't like to play on windy days. We don't have the slightest concept, but we can see the effect. We see it. And so again, he gives him this understanding. Well, so you would think, Nehemiah goes, okay, I get it. No, actually, the first question that Nicodemus says is, How can a man enter into the womb a second time? I don't get this whole spiritual rebirth thing. And then he says, well, let me give it to you in an analogy about the wind. And so Nicodemus in verse 9 answers, and he says to him, how can these things be? How can these things be? 
Jesus' reply to him is fascinating, and it is why I took you to Ezekiel chapter 36 to begin with, because Jesus says, are you a teacher of the Jews and you don't know these things? That is what we call accountability. That means that the word of God was put in place, not for us to keep it on a shelf, not for us to, to just read through without understanding. We are to look at it and say, this is the communication of God to us. Now, this idea of expectation, I know that some of the guys have been up here and they've been sharing the verses that are important to them. My pastor's verse that he loved more than any other one was found in the book of Luke chapter 12, verse 32. You don't have to go there. But it is Jesus saying, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. My pastor loved that passage. But do you notice that that is an expectation verse? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give to you. We are going to inherit a kingdom. While much of the church is trying to build one, God's already built one. And we are the inheritors of that kingdom. And so my pastor, with all of that, he came from a troubled past and all that stuff. It was such a, such a comforting thing to him to hear the creator of the universe who became flesh and gave his life on a cross to tell my pastor through his word, don't fear. The implication in that is that you are fearful about things. In fact, if you read chapter 12, it's about they're so worried about what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, where are we going to live, all that stuff. And Jesus said, you know what? The world worries about that stuff. My paraphrase. Seek first the kingdom. All these things will be added because it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so in that is an expectation and a hopefulness. My favorite one, and it's really bizarre because I, I didn't do English real well in high school. In fact, I still don't. I'm 50 years old and it's my first language, but you wouldn't know that. <laughs> I love the passage that makes no sense in the English. It's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And I would guess if you, if you met a 10,000 people on the, on the street and asked them what their favorite Bible verse, it's probably not this one. But it says, he has forever perfected those being sanctified. That makes no sense in English, does it? How can I be perfect when I'm being sanctified? Because what's the implication of sanctification? Failure, to some degree or another. Because we're being separated to him eventually, but the, in that separation is a lot of failure along the road, right? Yeah, speak for yourself, Chris. Okay, well, okay, then I'll speak for me. That's why it ministers to my heart. I'm blessed to know that when God looks at me, he says, perfect because of the work of my son. And yeah, he makes a fool of himself sometimes. But he's being sanctified. He's being separated unto me through the work of my son. That's an expectation verse, is it not? I'm not looking for my sanctification. That's the trouble along the way. I'm looking for my blessed hope, the perfection that has been purchased for me by Jesus. Now, when I think of that, somebody would say, you must have paid attention to your pastor. I did. I did. I saw in him a blessed hope. And if somebody would say, you remind me of your pastor. Now, if any of you had met him, you would say, no, you don't remind me of him at all. Unless you were reading both of what we did just in writing. But if you'd ever met him and met me, you're thinking polar opposites. He was kind of introverted. He was kind of quiet and, and uh, a, a different kind of a personality. But if you were to ask me, what do I know of what I know because of what I saw modeled by my pastor? And if, if at that point you said you remind me of him, I would consider that a compliment. Or if you would say, I can tell you're one of those Calvary Chapel guys because you're, you, you take the approach that Chuck does, or Dwight, or people that have been around from the beginning. I would look at that and say that is a high compliment. 
And if somebody would say, boy, you don't remind me of Calvary Chapel at all, I would want to say, what do I need to do to get back to that place? I don't ever want to be known for being a Calvary Chapel pastor that doesn't look like Calvary Chapel. Because we'd always had this love and this care and this concern for the word to to appropriate it to our own lives, to understand it, and then to be able to explain it to others. Believers and non-believers alike. The hope that lies within us, Peter talks about. Well, here Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the Jews and you don't know these things? He doesn't have to quote Ezekiel 36 to him. He should know that. Well, he goes on to say this. Verse 11, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have seen and you don't receive our witness. So if I had told you earthly things and you cannot believe or you do not believe, how will you believe when I tell you of heavenly things? His point is you're not even grasping and I'm trying to give you in a way analogy of things. But see, these are blinded to you because you're more trusting of your religious understanding than being in a place of expectation based upon what the word teaches. See, even for the most seasoned of pastors, from the best Bible teachers that we have within our movement or really anywhere in the world, we are still in a place of infancy, if you will, compared to what we ought to know in the deepest of things. That's going to be revealed in the ages to come. And so for us, we, don't want, to be in that, we want to be in that place of expectation. God, what will you reveal to me today? That I might be able to grasp even in the smallest little bit of a glimpse what is to come. And I want to be able to see that there are things around me. When, when I hear Jesus talk about this, that there needs to be a, a spiritual rebirth and a physical rebirth. When I hear him say that, and I'm hoping you can say this as well, I get it. I totally understand what he's saying. I won't ask for a, a show of hands, but if you are able to read that and say, I totally get it, I understand. Then thank God because that is revealed to you not because of your intellect, but because his spirit has revealed that to you. The word of God resonates in your heart and you understand it because he has revealed that to you. Or if you could say, yeah, I get the picture about the wind. I can see it as it moves the, the trees or, the, or the, the flag or whatever else. But I would never be able to tell you where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is the same with me. And the world will look at me. The unbelieving world wouldn't have a, the slightest clue of, of who I am. Or the things of which I speak. They wouldn't understand. Not until God opens their eyes to it, would they even be able to begin to comprehend what we, unfortunately, sometimes take for granted. We must be focused on the forever, the perfection that is promised to us through the book of Hebrews, though we are sanctified day by day. So he goes on and he says, now Nicodemus, I've talked to you about things in an earthly sense, and he's going to give him another example. And it's taken from the book Numbers, but let's read down to it. Verse 14 says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, if you're not familiar with Numbers chapter 21, this was where they were griping and complaining. And they said, God's brought us out here in the wilderness just to kill us off. Now, I, I know that this never happens with you guys, but from time to time I murmur. You guys wouldn't do this, but I do. And so the idea that we would possibly murmur, this is what they were doing. As though Egypt was a great place. Their slavery and their bondage that they were in. And now the New Testament parallel to us is that our sin was that same kind of bondage and we were enslaved to it. We were, it was our master and it would require our lives. 
And yet we've been broken free of that bondage, that slavery. We've been taken away from the consequence of sin. Well, these people had done that. And notice their complaint. If you go back and read it in chapter 21 of Numbers, they had said, and we, you know, we don't have water, we don't have food, we don't have this, we don't have that. And they said, we, and we hate this loathsome manna. The thing that sustained them supernaturally, they hated. They were tired of it. So let's go back to our slavery. Is this what you're thinking is a good idea? So what does God do? You want to be on your own? You're on your own. Murmur and complain all you want. And snakes come into the midst of them and begin to bite and attack. And these people are dying. And isn't it like the human? We are so good about griping against God until it costs us something. And then they go running to Moses. What do we do? So God goes, or Moses goes to the Lord and the Lord says, well, make a brazen serpent and put it on a pole and put it up in the middle of the people and tell them this. If they will look upon it, they will be saved from the, the bite or the sting of this serpent. I was talking with a couple of guys uh, the other night and just said, I, I may have even mentioned this here before. I hope there is video reels in heaven. I mean, I want to see Moses' face on this. Because this would be one of those, all right, let me see if I got this right. Make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. Put it up in the middle of everybody and tell them if they're bit, look at that, and if they believe, they won't die. Am I, am I missing anything here? That's exactly what I'm asking you to do. That makes no sense. And God would have said, of course it doesn't. It's not supposed to. Because it's going to be a supernatural thing. And besides, Jesus is going to mention it to Nicodemus in a couple of thousand years. You won't understand. Just do it. And so he did. Now, of course, the rest of that story is really kind of funny because... They looked at it, and they didn't even have a name for the thing. They called it Nehushtan. Anybody ever heard that story of what that means? Nehushtan. What does it mean? Uh, it's that bronze thing. And they had to, you know, it had to be removed. They worshipped it. It's like, oh, my gosh. We're, we're so human. This propensity to just worship stuff. Well, Jesus ends up using this as an example. And in, by the time we get to chapter 12, I believe it is, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all manner of men to myself. The same thing. And so Jesus is able to say at verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, verse 15 is very familiar to us, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Again, remember, this is for Nicodemus' sake to understand. Now, if we wonder, I wonder what ever happened to this Nicodemus guy. Do you know he gets mentioned later on in John's Gospel? He's there with Joseph of Arimathea to claim the body of Jesus. You think this little encounter had an effect on him? I would think so. And I'm assuming that he came to faith through this whole thing, and I can't wait to talk to him about this. Hey, man, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. What were you thinking when you said that? Those kind of things, right? And he would say, yeah, I've been watching you. I wanted to ask you some questions, so don't go through it. No. <laughs> Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So verses 14 and 15 go together. As Moses lifted up, so must the Son of Man, speaking of himself, that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Now verse 16 that we can all quote, notice it is an absolute reiteration of verse 15 but with a qualifier. And that qualifier was the motivation behind why Jesus would be lifted up that whoever believes. For God so loved the world, and the cost of that love was to give his only begotten son, so that whoever believes 
will not perish but have eternal life. The word, and, and why I want to make sure that we're careful about this, God so loved. Now we hear the word agape. That would be agape used as a noun. It's a type of love. It's more the quality of the love. And I'll get to it in just a moment. But it's not who it is that does the action of love that makes it agape. Though often we'll hear people say, well, that's God's love. Let's be careful. When it is a verb here, like you see it, it is agapao in the, in the Greek. It is an action. God so loved the world. How do we know that he so loved the world? He gave his only begotten son. So what's the benefit of that? Whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Paul tells us, Romans 5.8, that he's given us a demonstration of that love. While we were sinners, he died for the ungodly. That's what verse 16 tells us. And so it's so very quotable. But remember, it is, it is giving an explanation and further definition to verse 15. So if you're, you're taking a look at those two verses, as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must Jesus, the Son of Man, be lifted up, so that whoever believes on him, like they believed on the serpent at the time, would not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. That explains the motivation behind it. Now, to, to put away the beliefs that we see so often in this world, now, I'll just ask you, you don't need to answer, because uh, you might. You would Actually, if you answered any of the questions that I asked you, you would probably give me a, a heart attack. Because back home, I ask questions every week, and no one ever answers. So I, I should stop asking questions, but when you consider the world's view of God, it's hateful, it's angry, was that your view of him before he became the personal Lord, the God that, that lived and died so that you could live, that gave himself for your sins because you could do nothing about your condition? But before you knew him that way, did you not think of him as the way that PBS or History Channel or whatever else wants to talk about God, that wrathful person that was smiting Philistines? We thought of him as this angry God. Well, the world still thinks that way of him. How many times have we spoken to people and said, you know, Jesus loves you and you need to give your life to him. You need to, to repent of your sin and turn to him that you can be cleansed and that you can be born again. And however it is that we begin that whole dialogue. And the first thing, by the time that you said enough, sort of saying, so if I don't believe like you, I'm going to hell. Is that what you're telling me? And then it becomes a pushback kind of a thing. No, I'm not telling you anything. I'm telling you that Jesus loves you. Forget about trying to put up a front. I'm just telling you that Jesus loves you with an intensity that you don't even begin to grasp. How do I know? He died before we were even born that you could be reconciled to him. He loves you like that. And you would look at that and say, well, but what if I don't accept him? You're telling me I'm going to go to hell. Remember we hear that all the time? Here's the way that the Lord refers to that and how he answers it. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. This is the answer to that kind of a question, because he's about to say something else that is even you know, more impactful in the next couple of verses after this. So he says to Nicodemus, look, I'm here not as a way of condemning the world, because ultimately the world's already condemned. I'm here that it could be saved. And so this is the way when we talk with people, it's look, God doesn't want to be your judge. Actually, he went to extraordinary lengths to make sure that didn't have to happen. He wanted to be your savior. That's why he came here. He didn't have to do any of this. We're the ones that had rebelled. He doesn't owe us a thing. But he paid the ultimate price that we could be saved. 
What an amazing story that is. We don't merit that. We can't earn that. It is simply a free gift, and we see it right here. This idea of condemnation. I love the, the picture that's illustrated here because it really helps me to understand where, what, what's been done with me. Now, we live in earthquake country back where I come from. And, you know, sometimes you guys have, like, natural disasters that can happen here, too. But have you ever been to a home or a building or something that it had sustained some kind of just such horrible damage that nothing can be done other than to bulldoze it down? Right? That's a condemned building. That is condemned. There's, it's beyond repair. There's nothing that you can do. The only thing that can happen is that it has to be torn down. Here's the, the, the simple fact of it. Because of sin, we are all condemned. Except for those who have come to the Lord and say, yes, this thing needs to just be torn down. But I hear that you are in the, in the business, if you will, of taking even that which is condemned and making it new. Think of Jeremiah's imagery where he speaks about them as being pieces of pottery or, or pottery vessels that have been broken. And so any of you that have ever worked with clay, you might, you know, we, we used to have fun with that in high school. We'd get it on the wheel and all that stuff. And you'd see how fast can I make this thing turn before it starts spitting all over everybody, right? None of you ever did that? Of course you did. See, at least some of you are honest about it. Well, and when the whole thing would go haywire, you could just kind of gather it all back up and start all over. It was just kind of fun. So we would you know, be able to do that. But as soon as you put that thing in the kiln, it was over. Now this thing was rigid, and there, I don't care how much water you put on it. Actually, you made it so you could put water in it, and it wasn't going to change the makeup of it at all. And once it was broken, it was gone. There's nothing you could do with it. Jeremiah's imagery is that God says, I take that broken pottery, and I reconstitute it. I break it down and I make it where it's actually pliable again. That's supernatural. It doesn't happen on its own. That takes a supernatural work of God and so he makes it into something that is beautiful. Well, that kind of spiritual change that takes place is what he's trying to explain to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, get past the idea of religion and get to the understanding of a rebirth in a spiritual sense. And so he says in verse 18, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We have to be willing to say to the world around us the truth of the gospel. If somebody wants to say, what, so you're telling me that if I don't believe in Jesus just like you do that I'm going to hell? No, no, you're already on your way there. However you can say that diplomatically. The Bible says that we're all on our way there, unless there is a change that takes place along the way. But Jesus came so that we would not be condemned because he wants to see spiritual rebirth. He paid an awesome, amazing price that this could take place. So we're able to read there that this is what happens because they did not believe in the name of the Son of God. Belief is the simple matter. It's not about being the smartest person in the room or having a seminarian's degree. It's none of those things. It's about a simple belief in an amazing thing that took place, done for us, and it was something that God had consented to, Jesus, the Son, consented to before he created anything that we saw. Now, we were in Israel a few, uh, few weeks ago, and I'm still awestruck by this when I finally saw it with my own eyes. If any of you have been there, you know that the first time that you actually stood on Mount Carmel was the first time that you ever saw the Valley of Armageddon lays out in front of you. 
So as you look down the right side of the valley, you get to Megiddo and Jezreel and Bet Shean is out in the distance. And so there's those things. And Herod where Saul was put to death and Gideon did his thing. Out over here is Nazareth. And so it goes all the way out into the valley. And so many times wars have been fought there. And when we went from, from Carmel, we got over to Nazareth. And I started thinking about this this one day. And I shared this with the, with the group. The thing that almost got Jesus pushed off the cliff and we believe that, you know, the potential that this may be one of the places where they tried to cast him over this cliff. If this is actually it, he would be able to gesture. Because he ends up teaching them from Luke chapter 4 where he says, he, he, he speaks in the synagogue and he's, he's actually reading from Isaiah 61 about proclaiming the, the acceptable year of the Lord. Remember? He's here to, to uh, proclaim uh, liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. Remember that when he did that? And he hands it back to the attendant and he says, today this has taken place in your sight. And he sits down. He didn't read the rest of that, of that verse because it says, and to execute the wrath of Almighty God. That's not why he was here. He was here to give liberty to the captives. That's us. That's why he was here. And it's amazing if that was actually the place where this all took place. Think, he's looking at the Valley of Armageddon. This is where I'll come back and end humanity. And everything that his eyes could see, he created. He'd even be able to gesture like he did to them and said, you know what? You guys rejected Elijah, the guy that was right up over there having the the fight with the prophets of Baal. And now here you are contending with me the exact same way. There's no honor even for a prophet among his own people. He was able to say those kinds of things. It's just an amazing thing that he says. And so this idea that Jesus would be able to look at a valley and say, I'm gonna, this is going to be the end of humanity. He'd also be able to look at the horizon this way and say, but I'll go and give my life on a cross there first that man can escape what's going to happen in this valley. I don't know about you, but when I start to take that in, I know that that's true from the scripture, but to think that God had that level of forethought before the foundations of the world because he so loved his creation that he would do all of those things in that sequence is more than my mind can fully grasp. I trust it by faith because the word of God says so. But I don't love like that. I, don't have no, I have no idea what that kind of love is. And I think I'm pretty decent on the whole love thing. Ask my wife and my daughter. They'll tell you I'm a lovable guy. But I don't get that kind of love. It blows my mind. Short circuits my, my, my brain. Well, look at what he says. There's one other part here that I want to make sure that we understand. Why is it that the world can be so angry and so warring against the nature of God, the one who loves them? Here's what it says. And this is the condemnation. Now, when he speaks about condemnation, the Greek here gives us the impression or, or the, the, you know, the way that we look at this is that here's the verdict because of that. People are condemned already because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And so what's the verdict? What's to be done? Here is what is the motivation and here's what God will do. Verse 19, that light has come into this world, but men loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They were consumed by the evil things. Now, would it surprise you? Again, let me go back to this, what I mentioned about love and agape. We've heard it mentioned a lot of times love agape it's the it's the kind of love that if we understand it this way we can have love brothers and sisters right philadelphia phileo love we got that cool there are other types of love that are mentioned in the scripture but then there's this word agape and god so loved he had that kind of love and he put it in action agapao verse 19 says that men love darkness would it be surprising to you to know that that's also agapao 
They're so given over to their darkness, they love it with such an intensity, they'll do anything that's required. Look at our world today. We think it's not just, you know, we, we think it's everywhere else in the world. Why would a guy cut off another man's head thinking that he's doing God a service? Look at the stuff that we celebrate in our country. Look at the things that go on every single day that are such an offense to God. And yet people have no conscience of it because they are so given to their darkness. They are so in love with their darkness that they don't care. Thus they're condemned. Jesus came to set those people free because many of the things that we see going around in our world today that are appalling to us, we may have been participants in ourselves at one time. But now we've seen him face to face and he's changed us. We get this whole thing that he's saying to Nicodemus. Look, Nicodemus, I get it. You're a religious guy. You're coming here, you've got a bunch of questions. You don't even know how to get them out of your mouth, so let me help you. You need to be born again. What? How is that going to work? I'm an old man. I, we don't even know if his, his mother was still alive. So I'm supposed to enter the womb a second time to be born. Why are you talking about? You're a teacher of the Jews and you don't know this, Nicodemus? It's written right there in Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah talked about it. The idea of a spiritual rebirth. It's been out there as a promise. Why are you not waiting for your promise? You get where we're going with this? What's your promise? What has God offered to you? We've been talking about it for the last three days. It's the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It is the thing that motivates us. And it's the thing that makes me not want to just go ahead and cash it all in. Because I look at the world around me and there is no hope in this world. Good grief. Look at what we've got running for president. And we're in better shape than most of the world. I'm embarrassed of what we've become. But my hope's not in this world. My expectation is in another one. The one that's been offered to me because of the work of the Son. Because of what he's done in putting away and actually obliterating, abolishing sin on my account. Thus I am perfected, though I am being sanctified. Those life verses, if you will. Based upon expectation. And if there are any of you in here this morning, and you're in a place where you're just so troubled by the things of the world, well, welcome to the club. This world's a very troubling place, but where's your hope? Where's your expectation? We've been talking about this for these last days. Why are, you, why are you getting up in the morning? Is it because of the hopefulness that, hey, maybe this is the last day that I'll actually wake up on this planet? Maybe the next time that my eyes open, I'll behold his face. My pastor used to talk about that with incredible passion. And it took root in me. And so I await the glorious appearing. I await seeing him face to face. And I won't come to him with any kind of pridefulness saying that I deserve to be here. I'll look at him and say, I had no hope without you because my, my deeds were evil. They were evil. As were any of us before we were saved. And God sees those things and said, they're all under the blood. And I've forgiven them. Then he asks us to walk with him and to be sanctified, to be holy, to walk with him in a place of integrity. This is what he asks. As we await him with expectation, we are supposed to be doing so in a way that also reflects who he is. Remember, Jesus said at the end of the Beatitudes, let your what? Light do what? So shine before who? Men, that they do what? See your good works. Glorify your father in heaven. It is to him that we give the glory because we are not capable of anything of any usefulness at all in this life. Only what he produces through us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
unto good works, right? This is what he calls us to. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your faithfulness to us. You have seen to the matters of salvation before we were a thought. Not only did that take place 2,000 years ago, the planning for this before you spoke the, the worlds into existence. And so we rejoice. So we thank you. So we give you the praise, the glory, the honor. I'm asking, Lord, for those who are here assembled this morning. If we're in a place of indecision in these matters, if we don't really have them settled, we're asking, Lord, that you would set people's hearts free. If we haven't come to the place of expectation on an every single day way, God, would you help us with our minds that we wouldn't be so troubled by the things of this day. And if there are any in here who are much more in the, the place of Nicodemus, of not even understanding what spiritual rebirth looks like, I'm praying, Lord, that they've heard enough from your word that they might come before you, make that decision to entrust their lives to you. There is nothing in this world. It is going further and further away from you by the day. But you hold the remedy. We thank you for your faithfulness and for your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.